Hi. This is Practice in Place, Law and Justice Go Viral, a podcast that asks the question, how does a profession governed by precedent respond to the unprecedented? Practice in Place investigates how the practice of law and the administration of justice have adapted under the abrupt constraints of the COVID-19 era, how that has affected how and whether we achieve justice, and how those changes and that experience might or should change the practice, the profession, and its procedures forever. I'm Susie Salmon, Clinical Professor of Law and Director of the Legal Writing Program at the University of Arizona's James E. Rogers College of Law, and I'll be your host. In episode six of the podcast, we talked a bit about the issue of coronavirus transmission in our jails, where defendants detained after arrest and before trial waited in conditions that made ordinary precautions against infection, things like social distancing, hand washing, use of personal protective equipment, basically impossible, putting detainees and jail employees at risk. Of course, Those same issues exist in other detention facilities, such as prisons. According to a research letter published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in June 2020, which was based on the results of a study by researchers from John Hopkins University and UCLA Law's COVID-19 Behind Bars Data Project, the rate of COVID-19 infection in prisons is 5.5 times higher than that in the general U.S. population, and the rate of death from COVID-19 infection was over three times higher. The Marshall Project, which has been tracking COVID-19 in prisons, asserts that by July 21st, 2020, at least 70,717 people in prison had tested positive for the virus, and at least 713 deaths had been reported. Prison cases first peaked in April, but new cases hit an all-time high in July after a significant jump in positive tests in prisons in Texas, California, and the federal system, as well as outbreaks in some other states. Among prison staff, there have been almost 16,000 cases and 55 deaths reported, although those numbers are based in most instances on voluntary reports to prison employers by those infected, and so may not represent the full extent of the problem. The pandemic has highlighted many issues with incarceration in the United States. And one of those issues is that of private prisons. Back in May, watchdogs began to raise the alarm that we weren't getting reliable data on COVID-19 infection among prisoners and staff from the private prisons and at least two private prisons in the federal system were identified as disease hotspots. Further, uh, many suggest that private prisons exacerbate the disparate adverse impact our criminal justice system has on people of color, and in particular, on black men. Some form of privatization of prisons has existed for centuries. Uh, It can be traced back to prison ships, The San Francisco Bay Area's famed San Quentin began as a partially private contract facility. During Reconstruction, plantation owners and others who no longer had access to abundant free labor after the abolition of slavery contracted with prisons to lease convicts 
to bolster their workforces. But the prevalence of private prisons is a relatively new phenomenon, born in the 1980s, when various circumstances, including the war on drugs and increasingly harsh sentencing, created a burgeoning demand for prison space. Just to give you a sense of the the weight of that increase in demand, according to a chart put together by the Sentencing Project, based on statistics from the Bureau of Justice Statistics Prisoner Series, the population in state and federal prisons in the United States went from hovering around 250,000 in the early 1980s to approximately 1.5 million now. By comparison, between 1929 and 1980, the state and federal prison population only increased from about 150,000 to about 250,000. So with that increase in demand, private companies jumped into the gap. As of today, anywhere from 10 to 13% of prisoners in the United States are in private prisons. Although as the website for Abolish Private Prisons notes, that number is hard to pin down because prison authorities move prisoners between public and private facilities with some frequency. Now, some states are more reliant on private prisons than others. Montana and New Mexico, for example, incarcerate close to 40% of their prisoners in private-run facilities. Arizona's numbers are close to 20%. Three companies dominate the private prison industry. Management and Training Corporation, or MTC, is one. And then two publicly traded companies, CoreCivic, until recently what was known as Corrections Corporation of America, or CCA, and Geo Group. These three corporations hold about 90% of the prisoners housed in private prisons and they absolutely dominate immigration detention, by some estimates housing over 70% of immigration detainees. Abolish Private Prisons is an Arizona nonprofit dedicated to criminal justice reform. In the words of its founder, John Dacey, it's a young public interest firm whose first priority is litigation challenges to for-profit incarceration. The firm filed its first case in June 2020 in federal court in the District of Arizona against the Arizona Department of Corrections, asserting that prison privatization violates several provisions of the Bill of Rights to the United States Constitution. Shortly after the suit was filed, I had the opportunity to talk with John Dacey and his colleague, Robbie Craig, uh, about abolish private prisons, about the prison privatization problem and how it impacts the COVID-19 crisis and about the lawsuit. But first I wondered, with so many huge problems with our criminal justice system, why would an organization dedicated to criminal justice reform generally make going after private prisons, which after all only incarcerate about 10% of US prisoners, its first priority? Here's John Dacey. Several reasons for that. First of all, um, unlike most uh, prison and jail litigation that concerns conditions, uh, those are the kinds of cases that consume lots of resources uh, because those cases are about the facts on the ground that 
may be changing uh, during the course of the litigation, then uh, you have to, the, the law is pretty well developed. In this instance, it's about what does the Constitution mean? Um, it's, uh, the facts on the ground, the basic facts are fairly well established. Um, and the question is, does the Constitution permit this? A small group of dedicated um, people can have potentially a huge impact on how our criminal justice system operates or may change. So there's, there's the opportunity here for a small nonprofit to, to have a big impact um, uh, on one of the legs of, of mass incarceration. And, and in our view, um, the private prison industry is powerful and, and stands in the way of other types of reform involving criminal justice as well. You say that it stands in the way of reform. Can you give me some examples of how the private prison industry, as opposed to just prisons in general, stand in the way? Well, just think about any kind of business. So if we were talking about the hotel and resort industry or the nursing home industry or the hospital industry, other kinds of institution-based industries, you know, once you exist, you want to defend your existence. Um, you're in private business. You want to stay in business. You want to grow your business. Um, and when you're in the business of incarcerating people, the model doesn't work if the cells aren't filled. And that may not be in the public interest at all. Um, and, and so... Uh, just as the SEC filing of CoreCivic, for example, one of the publicly traded private prison corporations warns potential investors and shareholders, uh, various aspects of criminal justice reform may not be in the best interests of shareholder value. So uh, that's a pretty clear statement um, in, in terms of how profiting off of incarceration uh, is directly in conflict with all kinds of criminal justice reform. And, and specifically that SEC report lists some of the concerns, which include leniency and, you know, uh, sentencing reform that, that would lead to fewer and shorter sentences. So their, their express written product tells you why they're going to be a, a problem for common sense criminal justice reform. John and his colleague, Robbie Craig, whose voice you just heard, also talked about the problematic structural incentives for private prisons and how they affect prisoners and the system as a whole. Who's going to be put in prison and for what and when they get out is, is, is affected dramatically by the legislature. And, and these corporations spend plenty of money on, on political candidates, office holders, and lobbyists. At, at Capitol Hill, as well as the state legislatures. So there's that. Um, and in the case of what you referred to earlier, SB 1070, sometimes they're actually allegedly involved in writing the actual legislation. Correct. The, uh, and, and whether they've distanced themselves from that and whether they've said they have and whether they have are, are separate questions. Um, but then in terms of what happens inside the walls, if you will, 
and this is going to be true in the public as well as a private facility, what happens within the walls affects privileges, visitation, um, programs that someone participates in that might help them if they're struggling with substance abuse issues, behavioral health issues, medical issues, job training and education that has a lot to do with their chances of successful reentry. But it's also going to be the private security officer, if you will, that makes a decision whether to write someone up for an incident or not in the first instance. And even if it is the department that ultimately makes the decision, it's going to be the private employee that makes the determination we're going to write this person up. Now, the contract may say that the department retains all power to decide discipline. But I talk to prisoners who get, get, get stuck in the hole on a Friday afternoon after the DOC employees go home for the weekend, especially on a holiday weekend, and they're sitting in the hole until their disciplinary situation is reviewed until the following week. Well, that kind of paperwork affects early release time credits. It can affect someone's eligibility for parole and clemency, uh, the term now used, I think, uh, the Board of Clemency, and whether they're going to get out early or not. And if they're offered a program that qualifies them for an early release, whether that's offered in a private prison or not is a separate question. I've had several people tell me in private prisons, we're eligible for this program to get out 90 days early, and we've been told it's not offered here. Well, that directly affects liberty, and it affects payment to the corporation. And taking one step back from that, you know, it's not just what happens within the walls, it's how do you design the walls? You know, if the private prison corporation is thinking about, okay, I'm going to build this facility in order to secure a contract, the incentive structure is not to design a facility, you know, the, the actual walls and cells and common areas in a way to, uh, to promote rehabilitation, to promote learning, to promote those kinds of things. The, the incentive structure is to create a facility that makes it more likely that people are going to have these infractions that may or may not be reviewed by the DOC. Um, it, they have no incentive to take part in you know, sort of the more modern thinking about how should a prison operate? What should it look like? Um, how many people should be in each pod? Um, you know, the, the kinds of larger questions about what should a facility look like? How should it operate? Those questions just at the, in, at the, at the beginning level often don't get talked about, um, but are, are extremely important when it comes to what happens on a day-to-day basis. There's, there's a couple of other things that, that factor into the money. Um, so these corporations get long-term contracts with um, options to renew, one or two five-year options to renew, as an example. They also get occupancy guarantees. So, so the contract provides for per diem reimbursement. So if you think of it like a hotel, you know, hotel rooms are empty. The hotel's not doing so well. With the occupancy guarantees, the state is, is telling these corporations, um, 
we'll give you a 10, 20 year contract and we'll give you a 90% occupancy guarantee. What that means is if the crime rate goes down, if, if prison occupancy goes down, the Arizona taxpayers are still going to be on the hook to pay for those cells if they're empty. And that creates an incentive to move people from public to private prisons. I can't imagine any elected official is gonna to wanna to explain to voters, yes, we're paying these millions of dollars for empty prison cells in a corporation facility. And, and so what happens is sometimes people get moved without explanation. They get taken out of a program that's not offered where they're going to. But it also creates an incentive to keep the private facilities full so that we'll become more dependent on them uh, at a higher percentage of prisoners in the event our crime rates go down, which is what we're hoping for. So with the corporate model, your first loyalty of corporate management is going to be to shareholders. With the public model, the first priorities are the safety of the public, rehabilitation and successful reentry, and lowering taxpayer cost. Those incentives are, are at odds with the profit model of the for-profit prison corporations. Another reason to focus on private prisons now is their presence in the criminal justice system is only growing. If I can use the analogy to someone who's diagnosed with an early stage of cancer, you know, the, the response to that isn't to ignore it until it metastasizes and threatens the life of the patient. You go after it aggressively now. Well, the private prison industry has a foothold in our criminal justice system, and it's morphing into other kinds of pro, you know, for-profit services in criminal justice, for-profit probation, parole, uh, fee collection, ankle bracelets, you name it. And it's just a matter of time before they're creating subsidiaries to sell specialty services to police and prosecutors. So it's already spreading and it's global. It's, it's spreading in the United Kingdom, uh, South Africa, New Zealand, Brazil. Um, and at this point in our history, our justice system is not so dependent on private prisons that they are now too big to fail. So the time to do something about it is now. And, and of course, it's not an even usage of private prisons. Arizona is pretty high. We're at about 20%. New Mexico and Montana are closer to 40%. Uh, there are other states, such as New York and Illinois, that pass laws that prohibit private prisons. So it's, it's not a uniform uh, application of, of the use of contractors. But to answer your question, why this, why now? I think those are two of the biggest reasons. This is the time to do it before we become so dependent upon them. And just one other little fact, you know, a couple of states have considered and investigated turning over the entire corrections system to a private company. So it's not just a, you know, sort of vague theory about the state's 
becoming you know reliant on these corporations they've actively considered it and ultimately thankfully decided not to but it's a real threat rewind to 2016 though and the prospects for private prison corporations looked far bleaker the U.S. Department of Justice's Inspector General had reviewed conditions at a number of private prisons and concluded that they had significantly higher rates of violence and posed a significantly greater danger to inmate rights and safety. As a result, the Obama administration announced that it would phase out the use of private prisons in the federal system. The day that policy change was announced, Stock values for Geo Group and Core Civic plunged almost 40%. With the change in administration in 2017, however, came an immediate change in the fortunes of private prisons. Rather than phase out private prisons, the Department of Justice doubled down, requesting bids to house federal prisoners in private facilities. And in April 2017, Geo Group landed a $110 million contract. Just recently, as the state of California banned the operation of private prison facilities within the state, the Department of Justice filed suit to block the implementation of that law, at least as it pertained to federal facilities within the state of California. So those swiftly changing fortunes illustrate one of the reasons that abolished private prisons thinks the courthouse is the best place to attack the private prison issue. Here's Robbie Craig. You know, we appreciate and we help and work with people that are working on the legislative front, the policy front to, you know, steer away from private prisons and return it to, to the public. But we think it's important to work through the courthouse because those policy changes can change just like that, just as you mentioned. You know, you get a new administration at the federal level or you get new state administrations and those things can change quickly. And uh, the courthouse takes longer, of course, but also the change can last longer. So that, that's why we're choosing to approach it this way. Okay. And it, under, and it underscores the political power that the industry has. Okay, but why start with Arizona rather than states like Montana or New Mexico, which house 40% of their prisoners in private prisons? But Arizona might as well be ground zero uh, for this case as much as any, because the industry is powerful here. The three largest private prison contractors all contract in Arizona, and they don't just contract with the Arizona Department of Corrections. They contract with the city of Mesa for jail services. They contract with three of the four federal agencies that use private prisons. They contract with uh, other states that send their prisoners to Arizona, which Of course, I don't even know how that plays out in terms of the pandemic concerns. But with Arizona being in the top five by percentage of number of prisoners we send to private prisons, it might as well be here. And and then there's the the report that was done by National Public Radio several years ago on where did the funding come from that supported Arizona's Senate Bill 1070, um, the arrest people with brown skin bill that that the U.S. Supreme Court struck down in large part. The the NPR story concluded that the money to get that bill passed in Arizona came from the private prison industry. 
which at that time was very heavily invested in the American Legislative Exchange Council. So Arizona is a really good place to start. I think you know, the question about the timing of the lawsuits is interesting because when this incarnation of private incarceration was getting started, the promise in the 80s was that the private industry was going to be able to do it more cheaply, safer, and be more innovative. And now we have 30 to 40 years of evidence that suggests that's not true. So there is, there is a good reason for the timing to be now. And it's that the core promises don't seem to have materialized. So what's the point anyways, even, even on their own terms? It's, it's, that's a, it's, it's a way that the timing matters and, and it's, it, it's important. And, and the power that they actually have or implicitly have is, is perhaps illustrated as much in Arizona as anything by this. The Arizona legislature, uh, when it decided to go private uh, with corrections, mandated that there be an annual study to compare the costs of public versus private prisons. And the Arizona Auditor General's Office published their first study to answer that question in either 2010 or 2011 and concluded that private prisons cost slightly more. So what do you suppose happened after that? No more studies. The public doesn't get to know. And the criticism I heard was, well, I didn't study the right factors. Well, if that's true, then you fine tune your report. You don't keep the information from the public. Well, and it would seem that the 2016 DOJ memo and lawsuits by shareholders came to the same conclusion that they're less safe and they're actually not doing it for a lower cost. Yeah, along with along with some academic studies, you know, that are from statisticians and economists that have come to similar conclusions there you know in fairness there are a couple that have come to the opposite conclusion and said that there is some marginal cost saving but in in our research it seems that the weight of the evidence is comes down on the side that they aren't saving any money and that's of course not to mention you know that doesn't get into any of the constitutional issues that's 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 just on their own terms as they want to pitch themselves The Department of Justice Inspector General concluded back in 2016 that private prisons posed a far greater risk to inmate health and safety than did public prisons. So what does that mean now in the midst of a pandemic? On our blog, um, on our website, uh, for any of your listeners, that's abolishprivateprisons.org. Sorry for the Mm -hmm. self-promotion. But we have a lot of information on there, and and our most recent blog uh, commented on on particular nuances uh, posed by the COVID pandemic and private prisons. So the contracts I've I've looked at um, have carve-outs. It's fair to say, I think, that, that the private prison corporations are looking for lower maintenance, healthier uh, people to uh, keep in their cells than the public facilities have to deal with generally, which is a big factor. If you're ever going to compare costs 
of public versus private, you get one thing you have to take a look at is, you know, who are they taking care of? But the second thing, and it's very similar, you know, in healthcare, there's a phenomenon of um, adverse selection when it comes to prepaid. Um, or education. Exactly. Sure. I mean, you can have a private school that touts, you know, its success or a charter school that can be selective, that can tout its success, but they don't have to take everyone, right? They right. can hand pick uh, who they're working with. The, the other thing, though, that shows up in the contracts I've looked at are carve-outs for uh, people that have particular medical conditions. So you'll see clauses like um, the department will not refer people to us that have tuberculosis or uh, have HIV AIDS or, or some other type of serious chronic condition. I can foresee a private contractor coming back to the state if there was a massive outbreak in the facility and saying to the state, we didn't sign up for this. You don't pay us to have to deal with something like this. Now, I haven't heard of a contractor saying that, but if you look at some of the, the serious outbreaks in other private prisons in the country, not just private, but but the Trousdale Turner Correctional Center just outside of Nashville, they've got like 1,200 people that are tested positive. Um, and, and oh, by the way, some of the people we talk to in the private prisons are quite frightened over their inability to protect themselves. You talked about the distancing or spacing. I mean, I mean, I. I I would urge people to consider what that really means. The, the rooms are not necessarily private cells. I mean, you've got a dormitory style thing where you've got 60 men or women in a single room where there are bunk beds on top of one another and there are only three feet between each set of bunk beds and you've got 60 people in a single room every day. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a formula for disaster. And of course, you know, we should be thinking about people in prison because this is not part of, you know, the sentencing and the sort of deal that has gone on in society. But it's people that are in prison don't stay in prison. And the people that work in prison leave prison after their shift is over. So it's not just a prison health crisis. This is a public health crisis. And I think that some people... Um, have not quite made that connection that when staff members go into these facilities, they come home and they, whatever is happening inside of a prison is going to be happening in the communities where the workers live. And the same with their vendors, you know, including outside contracted medical people. Um, I've also heard that there've been issues with lack of transparency uh, with the private prisons and with you know, with the Board of Prisons, too, and other, in terms of getting reporting um, on testing and infection rates within the private prisons. Is that something that you're aware of? Or? Well, we certainly read the headlines early on when the state did not want to release information. 
regarding the spread of COVID um, in prison facilities. I think the reason given was HIPAA, which does not prohibit the release of the raw data. Um, so I, I didn't understand that reluctance. Um, I, I think there have been bills introduced uh, to Congress uh, several times to make the public, uh, the private prison uh, corporation subject to the Freedom of Information Act, for example. Um, it's been beaten back every time it's been tried. Which, I mean, just to make it clear, they aren't right now, right? So they're, those facilities are, are not subject to the same kind of transparency that public facilities are, and it's, it's a serious issue. I mean, I don't know if we've said that explicitly, but just so it's clear. <laughs> In June 2020, Abolish Private Prisons filed its first lawsuit. The other attorneys for plaintiffs, aside from John Dacey and Robert Craig, are Thomas Zlackett, a Tucson attorney and formerly Chief Justice of the Arizona Supreme Court, and two attorneys from Minnesota, Luzine Hoppe and Jacob Baer. The defendant is the director of the Arizona Department of Corrections. The plaintiffs are a class of prisoners incarcerated in private prisons in Arizona, and also the Arizona State Conference of the NAACP. Like the COVID-19 pandemic itself, our criminal justice system has a disparate adverse impact on people of color. And in the case of the criminal justice system, on black men in particular, 60% of people in prison are people of color. And one in 12 black men in their 30s is in prison on any given day. And black men are six times more likely to be incarcerated than are white men. The abolished private prisons lawsuit asserts that for-profit incarceration violates a number of provisions of the U.S. Constitution, including, most notably, the prohibition against slavery. Um, let's talk a little bit about the lawsuit and the, um, the sort of legal theories you assert. Obviously, the, the big headline-grabbing one would be the 13th Amendment claim. Um, talk to me a little bit about uh, the, the slavery count. To be quite clear, our, our claim is that, that incarcerating people for profit, privatizing incarceration, is a form of slavery. Not that it's like slavery, that it is slavery. And yes, we also say it's like slavery um, as well. So the 13th Amendment uh, reads, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, comma, except as punishment for crime after conviction, uh, comma, shall exist in the United States and its territories, words to that effect. And one question that immediately pops up is, does the punishment clause exception modify involuntary servitude or does it modify slavery and involuntary servitude? Um, there's an ambiguity there. I think the majority of people would say it modifies both. Um, but at least in one instance, uh, Justice Harlan of the U.S. Supreme Court, who also wrote the dissent in Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896 or seven, um, he also wrote a dissent in a, a case called Robertson versus Baldwin uh, a year 
before or after Plessy. And there was a 13th Amendment claim in that case, and I won't go into the opinion. Uh, it's an odd situation involving maritime law. Uh, but Harlan's dissent goes so far as to say the prohibition on slavery was absolute. The punishment clause modifies involuntary servitude. Um, so that's that's one approach to the issue of slavery. And then the question is, what is slavery? Um, the other way to look at it is, let's assume the punishment clause does modify slavery. Well, the 13th Amendment was intended to do away with private slavery not just, but private slavery. And here we're turning people over to private incarcerators uh, to make a profit. Um, our view is that even if the punishment clause modifies slavery, it did not permit private incarceration and punishment. So those are two ways we look at it. And, and then I think we've laid out in our complaint fairly well why we think this is slavery. So, um, and we'll be asking the court to interpret the Constitution and determine if it is or not. Yeah, a couple of sm just small twists on that. You know, the, if you go into the congressional records of what, you know, what they were thinking about when they were debating this, uh, one of the major concerns that they had was to, uh, they wanted to make sure that states could continue to incarcerate people. Um, and so, you know, if you think about sort of an original intent kind of interpretation about what they were trying to prohibit and what they were trying to make sure states could still do, the thing that they were trying to prohibit was this slavery where private people were having a monetary incentive to keep other people locked up and using them to generate value, uh, to use the, uh, the mere existence of the fact that they owned a slave as collateral for a loan or security for a loan um, to, you know, it, a lot of various financial tools to increase their personal wealth. Um, that, that's really what the target of the 13th Amendment was. It wasn't to get rid of the institution of incarceration generally. Um, so it's, a, it's another slight wrinkle in there about just what it is. And, you know, we think that one of the, there's a lot of different ways to think about what constitutes slavery. It's not a closed question. It's, an, it's a vigorous academic debate. Um, you have people that would define slavery expansively to include um, you know, lots of different kinds of relationships that include power imbalances. Um, we have the concept of sexual slavery that's you know, it's gaining a lot of international legal attention. Um, so I think one thing that in the sort of common zeitgeist about what we think of as slavery, the first thing that comes to mind is the chattel slavery of you know, the pre-13th Amendment, where there's this complete ownership and dominion and no rights attached to the slave. But slavery is a bigger concept than that. And so figuring out exactly what that is, is part of, you know, part of developments of this lawsuit. And we think one of the essential components is that reduction of a human being into a commodity. And when you take away that person's dignity, their personhood, and you reduce them to a line on a balance sheet that another person or another corporation can use to enrich themselves, that's a crucial component to, to what slavery is. And that is the key component that the private, corp the private prison corporations are exhibiting. 
And as long as we've had slavery, which, you know, clearly uh, uh, goes back to uh, hundreds of years before the Civil War, but even afterwards, as, as forms of slavery have continued, our legal system has protected it. And so whether you look at the Dred Scott decision, 1850 or whenever that was, it says Dred Scott is not even a person that the Constitution will allow to sue for his freedom. But if we look at the Black Codes that were adopted by some of the, well, most of the former Confederate states after the Civil War, um, and basically the criminalization of Black life to re-enslave the freed slaves and, and turn them into uh, lifelong indentured servants, if not leased out as free contract labor. Um, to Plessy versus Ferguson, you know, giving Supreme Court um, seal of approval to Jim Crow. Um, it, the, the courts have been involved and, and, and our legal system has been involved. And in our view, the evolution into a for-profit prison system is just the latest twist on the continuation of slavery in this country. And we're asking the court system to do something about it. Although, as with most litigation, and particularly civil rights impact litigation, this case has involved months or years of preparation and research, Abolish Private Prisons filed this lawsuit on June 15, 2020, just weeks after the death of George Floyd, and in the midst of protests around the country centered on to put it mildly, long-standing racial inequities in the criminal justice system in the United States. I asked John and Robbie about what it meant to bring this particular legal argument at this particular historical moment. I think this is the perfect time to bring it. Well, except for hundred years ago, you know, it's the best, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. And the second best time is today, I guess. But you know, that it's certainly helpful that people, you know, not just people whose families have experienced slavery, but there's a wider recognition uh, that seems to be growing that, you know, it's time to re-examine our relationship with different groups of people that the, and, and like John mentioned, one of the key components of this is it's the American government's relationship with groups of people that's at stake here, you know, and it's, there, at different times, different private people have taken advantage of the government blessing uh, different relationships, but it's it's the government that's at fault. The uh, the timing thing, though, you know, just a little personal history on that. When I first learned about the existence of private for profit prisons, well, this is late 2010, early 2011, I had no idea they existed. And once I started to read about what this whole thing was all about, I wanted to be able to talk to people about it. Nobody had any idea what I was talking about. They didn't know private prisons existed either. And typically the only question that was asked was, well, do they save the taxpayers money? not should they exist at all. 
And, and so the reason I say I think the timing is perfect, I mean, I agree with Robbie completely. You know, it would have been nice if a good case had been brought in the early 1980s when this industry was birthed in the U.S. But now the issue of private for-profit prisons is front and center in the news. It is, the people are aware of it. Presidential candidates are debating whether they should exist or not. So this is a good time for that reason. The complaint also asserts a violation of the Eighth Amendment's prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment. So in determining what punishments are cruel and unusual, the United States Supreme Court has said that courts should be informed by, quote, the evolving standards of decency that mark the progress of a maturing society. So a particular type of conduct might not have been considered cruel and unusual in 1789 or 1861 or 1988, but in theory, society might have evolved to a point that such things are no longer acceptable. One of our theories in in the uh, complaint is an Eighth Amendment claim. Mm -hmm. So we've talked a bit about dignity, human dignity. The Eighth Amendment is centered on the dignity of the human being. And our standards evolve over time, and they evolve with case law. So if there's any one area that I would expect everyone to agree um, that that the Constitution is a living document, it's in the Eighth Amendment arena. I can't imagine too many people would agree that the fact that we had an Eighth Amendment in 1800 and still took people to the whipping post means that we should be allowed to do that today. So as there is momentum toward criminal justice reform generally, that includes doing away with private incarceration. The one thing I would mention that I I wouldn't want to forget, you know, in 2009, the Supreme Court of Israel uh, determined that uh, private incarceration was a human rights violation that violated Israel's basic law and banned the industry from the country. So, you know, that's an example of, of one interpretation from international law that we think is pertinent. Right. And in the 13th Amendment context, of course, we talk about the practice being slavery. In the Eighth Amendment context, we talk about it being like slavery. You know, and it, even, even if someone and a decision maker doesn't agree with us that this constitutes slavery and however you want to define that, uh, you know, what scope. I think there's little question that it is like slavery. You have people who are traded in this like public procurement process and they're often shipped from state to state. Um, it, it has all of the badges and incidents of slavery to use some 13th Amendment Section 2 language. So, you know, to the extent that we've evolved to think that treating people like slaves is wrong. It, it, that's where the Eighth Amendment can come in. And, um, you know, it, it, there's at least a, a long line of jurisprudence about what that means in the Eighth Amendment. You know, what does it mean to have an evolving standard? The remaining theories asserted in the complaint 
center on equal protection, and both procedural and substantive due process. And whether injecting the profit motive into the deprivation of a human being's liberty compromises fundamental rights. When we talk about equal protection, um, there's been, especially since Obergefell, I think, a recognition that equal protection and due process are more intertwined than maybe we thought 50 years ago. Um, when you're thinking about what is a fundamental right, um, that kind of language is applicable both to due process and equal protection. So the, the equal protection claim really asks the court to decide, you know, is it a fundamental right to be treated not like a slave? You know, is it a fundamental right that I have to be held in a facility that is doing it for the reasons that we typically think about when we think about incarceration? You have general and specific deterrence, rehabilitation, and punishment, right? Are those the kinds of things uh, that a public facility is doing? And is it a fundamental right if a private facility is doing this, not for any of those four reasons that we tend to think about? They're doing it to make a profit. And if you know, there's lots of evidence for that, including their public-facing SEC statements. So when we talk about equal protection, it's really that fundamental right um, to be treated with, with the dignity, not like a slave, with uh, you know, just the, the respect that it, that it is to be a human. And when we move to due process, there's, there's, some, uh, there's a few different things that go into that. There's a line of cases that talks about biased adjudication. Um, and it's, it's a right to have an adjudicator that's free from financial bias. Um, some of those cases talk about small town judges and mayors who got money in their own personal pocket or the town fisc when they convicted defendants. And they were sitting as both a judge and a mayor at the same time. Um, it, it has been expanded in recent times to include things uh, like significant financial contributions to judicial campaigns, for example. So the question there really is, how direct a financial incentive does somebody have to have and how much adjudicative authority do they have to have over you for it to be an improper financial bias to be protected by due process? And like John was mentioning earlier, there's all kinds of these interactions that happen at a day-to-day -day level that either are completely unreviewable. So for example, any kind of deadly use of force or any use of force, those things aren't reviewable. They happen in the past, right? Like if somebody uh, uses tear gas against me or if they put me in solitary confinement, those things happened. And sure, there can be a decision later on that says that it was improper to do it, but it already happened. And they have the financial incentive to do that to me because of the way that it affects my release date and the way that it affects you know, proper adjudication. Um, there's also the more general procedural due process theory about uh, at, at every individual sentencing or transfer to a private facility, is the government making a decision that is supportable in the, in the procedural due process context? You know, are they thinking about things like saving money? Does it adequately protect the prisoner's rights? Those kinds of questions. Um, and finally, substantive due process, um, that's back, it gets, it gets close to the equal protection claim again, but it's talking about fundamental rights and just the right to be a person, but to be treated not like a slave. That's sort of a broad overview of the claims. If abolished private prisons were to succeed with this lawsuit, what effect will it have on prisons in general? 
I think you can look at what we hope for at different levels. The most immediate is that we eliminate the privatization of incarceration and the profit incentive to incarcerate people and to keep them there and to hope they return. So at the most literal level, we hope that that we get a decision that does away with those things. We understand that privatization of prisons is part of a much bigger issue. Mass incarceration. Why is it that this country incarcerates so many people at so many multiples of the rates of other Western countries, if that's your frame of reference? Um, and, um, and at what cost to individuals, to impoverishing families, to particular communities, to our taxpayers generally? I mean, I can recall years when we're dealing with the recession where state agencies were ordered to slash their budget, budgets. The one agency being exempt being the Department of Corrections. Um, there's also the issue of, of um, the disproportionate impact of this system on the poor, the homeless, people of color, um, immigrants, uh, people with mental illnesses, and, and a more dramatic impact. There, there's a at least a couple of studies suggesting that as disproportionate as the impact of criminal justice system lands generally on people of color, it's even more accentuated with privatization. So um, uh, we, of course, would hope for broader impacts, beneficial impacts, um, and, and get get our leaders to think in longer term successful strategies. I think there's an important that maybe a, a bit of an arcane thing uh, about privatization. And one of the few ways that individuals have a direct say in the, you know, the incarceration rate and the crimes and how things get, how people get punished, punished is generally the process for building a prison is the state has to go to a locality and say, we need this money and they raise a bond issue. And if you don't want a prison and you know, and you say, we're fed up, um, we don't think this many people should be in prisons, I can vote no on that very directly. I can't vote on legislation. I can vote on legislators, but of course, you know, that's a whole nebulous thing about other issues that they support. So unfortunately, our Zoom connection got a little sketchy right around here, but Robbie pointed out that Private incarceration corporations can bypass the voters and the bond process by going to the legislature directly and asking for money from the general fund. So going back to a model of exclusively public prisons would restore the choice to the voters. And at a time when people are increasingly sensitized to issues of over-incarceration, and in particular, the disparate impact on communities of color. So Although this particular lawsuit targets private prisons, not for-profit immigration detention, Robbie thinks that many of the legal theories asserted in this suit would apply to a claim involving immigration detention centers. We've looked at and are continuing to look at immigration detention. Um, the theories are somewhat different, although they overlap in some ways. You know, there's different concerns when it comes to national security. The executive branch has a bit more leeway in how they handle uh, immigration concerns and uh, citizenship concerns. Um, 
At the same time, there's perhaps uh, some stronger 13th Amendment claims because uh, many of the people in immigration detention have not been convicted of a crime. So to the extent that there is a punishment clause exception to the 13th Amendment and whether that exists or not is, you know, it's an interesting question in itself. But even if it does, it it may or may not apply. It, It certainly applies differently in the immigration context than it would in an incarceration context. Um, but you know the due process concerns are similar um so it's uh, each claim has sort of a different wrinkle in it when you're talking about immigration detention when it comes to incarceration we considered making it one bigger lawsuit but ultimately i think um just for practical reasons and just keeping things as distinct as possible and narrowing in on the issues we thought it made more sense to focus on uh, incarceration first um but you know like John was mentioning, incarceration to, or immigration detention actually is somewhere around 70% uh, of those people in private facilities versus you know between 10 and 15% in the incarceration arena. So in some ways, it's a, you know, it's a bigger problem by numbers in the immigration context. Ultimately, this lawsuit seeks some clarity on constitutional questions that have gone unanswered for the past several decades. And just so you know, in 1990, the American Bar Association passed a resolution calling for a moratorium on private prisons and jails until the complex constitutional issues were resolved. And obviously that moratorium resolution was ignored. Um, So it's not like this is an issue that occurred to us first and it hasn't been written about beforehand. But interestingly, those complex constitutional issues were never resolved in the intervening 30 years. So that's, you know, that's one of the reasons that we're doing this. You can learn more about Abolish Private Prisons, the private prison industry, and the constitutional issues involved by going to abolishprivateprisons.org. Abolish Private Prisons is also on Twitter, at Abolish, P-R-I-V-P-R-I-S, and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Abolish Private Prisons. Please look for future episodes of Practice in Place on the Arizona Law website at law.arizona.edu forward slash legal dash writing. We're also now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, Anchor, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Please share, subscribe, rate, and review to help us reach new listeners. Like us on Facebook, just search for Practice in Place. We'll share additional content related to new episodes there. You can also follow us on Twitter at Practice Viral and on Instagram at at PracticePod. And you can follow the U Arizona Law Legal Writing Team on Twitter at UALaw. L-E-G-L-W-R-I-T-N-G. Practice in Place is a production of the legal writing program at the University of Arizona's James E. Rogers College of Law. Special thanks to James Alvarez, our talented editor, whom we must credit for everything about this podcast that sounds polished or professional. We hope to continue providing a window into how the COVID-19 crisis has impacted our courts and the practice of law, and also sharing our insights into what the response to the crisis tells us about the past, present, and future 
of our courts and the legal profession. Until next time.